straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Edinburgh. As we are continuing our series on models of God, we have arrived at two models called pantheism and panentheism. Pantheism is said to be an ancient model of God that is found in different religions across the world. In today's episode, I sit down with Andre Bukhareff to discuss the metaphysics of pantheism and panentheism. We chat about how to distinguish these models of God from classical theism and open theism. Then, in the next episode, Andre and I will consider arguments for and against pantheism. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here is Andre and I talking about pantheism. Enjoy. So for most of Western history, the majority of philosophers and theologians have affirmed a model of God called classical theism. And since at least the 20th century, there's been a more widespread and sustained effort to develop different conceptions of God. So Andre, you've been exploring alternative models of God for several years now. What what got you interested in this research project? My interest in thinking about alternative concepts of God goes back to when I was a graduate student not a, a graduate student of philosophy, but I studied theology before I went on to do a PhD in philosophy. And when I was studying theology, I was really, really interested in problems that classical theists faced related to both soteriological issues as well as some problems related to, well, the evil. Mm-hmm. Okay, And uh, at that time, I became really attracted to open theism. So that was sort of the, uh, if you will, the... Um, the gateway. Okay, uh, so it was the gateway drug for you. Yeah, the gateway drug for me <laughs> was open theism. So I started looking at open theist proposals, and I found them very attractive. Um, they seemed to have, um, to give me everything I wanted, right, and sort of a, a conception of God that was closer to what the traditional or classical conception of God is like, while still taking into account some of the insights from process theism in particular. Um, so somebody who, who comes to mind here is David uh, Basinger. So David, oh, right. his work, he was somebody who early on was saying that there are things about both to affirm here. Clark Pinnock, too, was somebody yeah. else who said, right, so here's these two different kinds of models of God, and there's something right about both. Is there a way that we can take what's great about both of them and, and, and develop a model of God that will avoid the problems that each one of them may individually face and then build on the strengths that each one of them has while, you know, again, fusing them together, if you will, mm-hmm. achieving a synthesis. And so, uh, so at that point, I would say my interest in alternatives started up. And initially, my thinking was you've got open theism on the one hand, and open theism can do a lot for you here. In fact, you can even start talking about embodiment. And mm-hmm. here I'm thinking about Swinburne. Yeah. You even have people like Wolterstorff, who would, I'm not calling him an open theist, but sure. he has these ideas about God's passibility. So there was a lot that I really liked there, but I didn't think it had some of the problems that process models had. Uh, so my first, the first paper I ever published, actually, was on process theism, oh, okay. and it was critical. And it was arguing that process theists um, have a difficult time accounting for natural evils. Because saying oh, that yeah. God is a co-sufferer, uh-huh. if you think about the natural evils that result from ev- the process of ev- evolution, right? right? Evolution's ugly, yeah. right? I mean, it involves suffering. God's uh, co-suffering with you is not something that God does freely. 
Right. Right. So it ends up being an essential property of God that God is embodied. Yeah. Right? So so now you end up having God being in this essentially in this relationship with the world where it ends up being a part of God and God's suffering with you. But it's hard. It was hard for me to see how that actually did any kind of uh justificatory work so, mm-hmm. so that's where the starting point was the starting point was thinking about ways to fix classical theism if you will mm-hmm. without going too far um, and then trying to diagnose what was wrong at the same time with um, some alternatives and but from there though I started getting more and more interested in panentheistic and pantheistic proposals and I found that when I started, again, doing sort of a cost-benefit analysis, I found that the costs of accepting classical theism outweighed the benefits, right? Mm-hmm. And so I moved more in a panentheistic tradition, uh, uh, um, uh, direction. But then I found that my views in philosophy of mind didn't uh, fit well with my views on God. Because, oh, okay. Um, in this case, I was a monist, right? I didn't mm-hmm. think that there were any... I wasn't a dualist about properties. There's just one kind of stuff, right? Um, it, the time I would describe myself as a physicalist, now I think I'm more willing to say I'm a neutral monist. But the point is you have one kind of stuff, and that one kind of stuff provides us with the truth makers for all kinds of things in the world. And you have that kind of view of the mind, and then if you're a panentheist, that's going to be kind of problematic. I just did two. There was, again, there was some conceptual strain here, right? right. In this case, there's some incoherence that I needed to resolve, and so I found myself moving in the direction of a version of pantheism. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the trajectory that things took, which was panentheism allowed me to do a lot that I wanted to do with classical theism, particularly in, in particular having a, uh, a conception of the divine where God ends up being understood in personal terms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and uh, but then recognizing that that conception of God was not one that fit well with other commitments, right? Right. And so, really, what it was looking, what I'm looking for here at the end of the day, right? I have a particular starting point over here, which has to do with concerns that I have as a Christian theist. Um, but then, by the end of the, if you will, the, the story, mm-hmm. it's more about trying to get a consistent metaphysic, right? right? Um, that can do, hopefully, do all the work that we want it to do for us, not just metaphysically, but also practically. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because I, I can understand this sort of trajectory of saying, like, okay, classical theism has got some problems. I don't really want to go process because it's got even bigger problems. So, what's something in the middle? Oh, well, okay, my open theism. It's a nice sweet spot, right? Yeah. But, but yeah, but then, then the problem that all of us have is we've got all these other independent views on lots right. of different issues in philosophy and theology, and then you try to sit down and make them systematic. Ooh, well, goodness, now you've got all sorts of problems that pop up. And so for you, it was, I'm really committed to this particular view in philosophy of mind. Yeah. It doesn't fit with my model of God. I've got to do something different now to really have a systematic, uh, uh, you know, without any having any incoherence, I guess, in my system of beliefs. Right, right, right. Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit then about uh, some of these different models of God you've mentioned here. So in some of my own work, like I've, I've really struggled to figure out how to clearly demarcate some of these different models of God. Yeah, yeah. So for example, I don't, I don't typically understand how a panentheist is different from theism or pantheism. And so perhaps you can help me out here. So, so how do you understand these models of God and how do you demarcate them from each other? Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'll say at the outset that I think panentheism is kind of the ugly stepchild. And let me explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to situate panentheism mm-hmm. Um, between pantheism and, pan- and, and, and and traditional theism, so 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 consider think think about just the a common definition of pantheism. Some people will say pantheism is uh, a metaphysic of the divine on which God everything God is everything. Right, you'll hear that. The panentheist is going to say that too. Right, <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, now. 
Now, okay, so 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 how might we then try to um, sort of, if you will, really sort of like clarify, right, these these two conceptions, right? So let's engage in some conceptual clarification. Mm-hmm. I think what we now have to start thinking about is that is claim, right? Mm-hmm. So is the is an is of identity? If it's an is of identity, then we might be on the road to a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you start saying God is everything, right? So yeah. now then what you have is is God is identical with Right. If you'd like, if you want to think in terms of the mirological sum, right, of mm-hmm. right, all the all of the existence, right, in the world, then right, you've got something that starts looking different from, let's say, if you now take the is to be an is of constitution, where that's mm-hmm. different from identity, right? Where now what you have is is something constitutes something if you know the totality of that that stuff, right? is makes up what that is namely god but it's not identical with god right words, right you can they're not going to be sharing the same essential properties mm-hmm. right so so to be clear here so the is of identity is different uh, so like from constitution so constitution right. is not identity it's a sameness relation but it's not identity it's just yeah. short of identity at least yeah i'm 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 inclined actually to ultimately take constitution to actually be identity but Ooh, I'm, okay. I'm gonna play that game though sure. and say okay I'm going to let the panentheist say, okay, what I mean by this is then is an is of, I, okay. of constitution, not an is of identity. I think that there are compelling reasons to deny that constitution is a distinct relation from identity. Okay. I, I won't get into those sure, here right now. Enough. But but, um, but I think that's one way that you can do this. And Mark Johnston does that, for instance, in his mm-hmm. book, Saving God. And I think that's a very helpful approach. But now there ends up being some other worries. Because now if you start saying God is everything, right, and you have... Okay, let's say panentheism is the constitution claim and pantheism is the identity claim. You then start getting views that end up being basically, for all intents and purposes, they're identical to each other, mm-hmm. right? It's just that there's a there's a, a an argument over whether or not the is is an is of identity or constitution, and I think it's deeper than that. Most panentheists, I think, take God to be something more than the universe, whereas most pantheists take God to be identical with the universe. Right. And so there I think li- therein I think lies an important difference between the two. Um, and that I think is an even more significant difference in the constitution identity uh, distinction, which that is significant. But now what we've got here is, is I think pantheism is any any version of pantheism that is worth describing as pantheistic is going to be naturalistic, I think, mm-hmm. metaphysically naturalistic. In other words, what you're not going to be committed to are any existence apart from the ones that would be occupants of you know the this, this, this space-time universe, right? Sure. In which we find ourselves, right? So there aren't any abstracta, for instance. You can oh, okay. be a, being a Platonist about numbers is not going to be consistent with um, pantheism, I think. Okay. Right. Whereas you can be committed to abstracta that are not right found in the universe right they're nowhere in space time um and they're real things and be a panentheist i think so i think that that is an important difference between the two now i have to be really careful here because notice i I'm, I'm saying naturalism is the difference i think that there are na- that there are panentheistic conceptions of god that are naturalistic in one sense mm-hmm. right but it's not the sense that i'm interested in the sense okay. of naturalism i'm interested in is ontological naturalism sure where ontological naturalism is going to be the thesis that whatever existence there are in the world are going to be existence in the universe, right? right. In the physical universe, right? So um, in the case of panentheism, if you now start saying that God is universe plus in any sort of sense, Mm -hmm. right? 
you might say that it's a naturalistic conception of God, but I'm not sure if that's ontological naturalism. So an, right. so an example here ends up being somebody like Mark Johnston. Mark Johnston wants to give, he gives an account of panentheism that he says is naturalistic, but it's not ontologically naturalistic. It's really more a kind of um, causal explanatory naturalism, if you will, right? He says, if you look at any phenomena in the world, they all have natural causes. Sure. That's it, right? Yeah. That's it. So that, that's what it comes down to, right? So that yeah. doesn't exclude the possibility of there being more than, if you will, right, mm-hmm. the stuff that would be constitutive of the physical universe. Right. right. So that's... Um, it just wouldn't be playing a causal role? It doesn't play any sort of causal role, right? Okay. Exactly. I guess they... Like, hmm. So if, so if God is more than the universe on this account, though, and he's not, but he can't play any causal role... I guess I just don't see what God would be doing. Well, it's the other parts of God, right? So oh, it's, it's, right. right? Oh, so those yeah. those aspects of God would be doing something. Right. right. Okay. So in the case of, of... Because the universe is constituted of God. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So, 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 so God parts is. of God would, would be doing it's, the natural causing. Exactly. Right, okay. right, right. So 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 um, so on his account, you've got, you've got being uh, that is um, manifesting itself, right, mm-hmm. in, in a certain way, right? And then you and I are partakers of that, right? Right. Um, in our experiences. So you have this, he, he does really want the account to be one where you end up getting a sort of rich conception of God being active all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's not what I think people oftentimes have in mind when they think sure. about divine agency, yeah. but nonetheless, you still have this kind of activity that's going on there. And he thinks it's sufficient to actually provide us with truth makers for talking the ways that we oftentimes do. Mm-hmm. And he actually appeals, for instance, to Thomas Aquinas here, um, right. as an example, to, in, in, in trying to make the case for that. So... And so I think his work in particular, I know I'm talking about Johnston a lot, but yeah. I think his work in particular is is perhaps the most interesting work on panentheism in recent years. And that's why I think it's so worthy of attention because he is more careful than anybody else that I'm aware of. on that, Right, on because of that's been my frustration a lot of times when trying to get into the panentheistic literature is they're making lots of vague metaphorical claims. Yeah. And I'm like, well, those are the same vague metaphorical claims that the classical theist is making, right. that the open theist is making, that a process theist is... So I'm like, give, give me something real here. Give me something yeah. like an actual metaphysical story. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm tired of your metaphors. Yeah. And so that's what I did like about Johnson. He's like, he's like, okay, I can give you a nice, tight, actual metaphysical yeah, story here. Yeah, right, right. I mean, there's there's very few other people I can think of who do something that's similar to get us, get, get away from people who are uh, analytic philosophers mm-hmm. and analytic theologians. Arthur Peacock was somebody who I right. think was really trying mm-hmm. to make some sense of this. But I think a lot of times when he talks, he talks about God about divine properties being emergent properties. Yeah. And it's never really clear to me that what kind of emergence he's talking about, if it's strong or weak emergence, mm-hmm. right? Yes. A strong emergence is just, this is something that's unexpected, yeah. right? It's not predictable, but it doesn't mean that there's any new stuff in the mm-hmm. universe. Um, whereas, you know, strong emergence is there's the new stuff, right? So weak emergence, sorry. Weak yeah. emergence, no new stuff. Strong emergence, there's new stuff, but it wasn't predictable also, right? Right. And, um, and it's never really clear what kind of emergence he has in mind yeah. there. Because I'm totally cool with 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 weak emergence, mm-hmm. right? There's all kinds of things that you just wouldn't expect. Just, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Just, yeah, yeah. So, sure. so, I mean, just think about the activity of neurons. I don't think mm-hmm. we should expect consciousness given neural activity, right? It's just, right. It seems, it's but that odd. doesn't imply, though, necessarily strong emergence. Maybe it does, but, but it was never really clear. So I think that here you have somebody like Johnston and... The importance of his work is that he's somebody who was approaching these questions using this kind of analytic toolbox in a way that was informed by years of playing around with other questions. Right. And then he approaches this question and he does so, I think, in a way that is not only informed by the relevant metaphysics, 
but also by really a, what's evident. It's it's quite evident that he has a really deep understanding of a lot of the theological literature as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, which is, that, to me is is really really uh, quite an accomplishment. That's it why really I, is. That's why I think his work is so important. Yeah, right here. So that all being said, mm-hmm. I think that if we now then start thinking about other panentheistic proposals, as you said a moment ago, um, I, I get lost a lot of the time with right. what people have in mind here. Yeah. And this is even true of some work by some analytic mm-hmm. um, philosophers of religion and analytic theologians who are proponents of panentheism. It's never really entirely clear to me whether or not those are really panentheistic proposals or something else. Or if it's just theism or if it's just Yeah, yeah, or just, yeah, right. exactly, right. Yeah I've, yeah, I've struggled with this quite a bit. Yeah. But 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 I do feel like the, the account you laid out here where if I say identity, God's identical to the universe, I'm like, okay, clearly that's pantheism. Yeah. And no theist is going to want to say that. Right. And then if I say, well, what if I what if God's not identical? What if he's just constituted of the universe? Yeah. Well, not every pantheist is going to be happy with that. And certainly no theist is going to be happy with that. Right, right. So I've got some kind of now distinction to to make, which is which is nice because not everybody will give me that. So that's right. so it seems like an advance here. Yeah. Okay, so so those are some of the different models. Which which model of God are you most attracted to? Uh, pantheism, a version of pantheism. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. just full on pan. So none of the panentheism. Just no, just pantheism. no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, and again, I just see it as as. You know, so I had there's here's a model of the minds that I have. Yeah. And now I'm just thinking about a big mind. Exactly. And so what's going to be true here? I think we want some consistency across mm-hmm. the board. This is one of my complaints with John Bishop, for instance. Mm-hmm. John tells a story about agency that's deeply personal, like with human agency that's deeply right. personal, where uh, and it's causal. But then when it comes to now talking about God, he shifts gears very it's this radically. This non-personal yeah, yeah. God that I struggle to understand. What yeah, non-personal, even non-causal story with how God's acting in the world, if God's even acting. And so, um, and we've talked about this, and 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 he's he's I guess comfortable with letting there be this kind of difference between the two. But maybe that's because he's just fine with jettisoning uh, any project that is invo- that requires in it a commitment to, let's say, um, a personal conception of God. Mm-hmm. In fact, actually, to be honest, uh, so he and so John Bishop and Ken Persick, they're starting to see their own work as being new kind of expression of the kind of tradition that you find in Thomistic circles. Oh, okay. Right, where you've got a non-personal God. Yeah. Right? And there's some other people. I know you're going to talk to Simon Hewitt, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who are like yeah. this, right? So, yeah. So, so, so they're actually just. I was talking to Ken Persick about this this summer, and, and he's he's like, well, yeah, you know, really, in one sense, what we're doing here is just uh, we're just reinventing the wheel. That's mm-hmm. it, right? It's just right. So this has already been said before. We're just saying it again, and we're saying it in a slightly different way. But it's really arguably part of that tradition, yeah. Which I think is really interesting, but but I don't find that tradition attractive. Sure. <laughs> at the end of the day yeah <laughs> hence my move to let's say open theism once upon a time and so yeah. on right so yeah it just it doesn't give me what i think we want right mm-hmm. um, so yeah so I, f- I find this move this this uh connection between your philosophy of mind and, and your doctrine of god really interesting because i've met a lot of people who don't want to do that like because mm-hmm. i because i because I, I, i'm a substance dualist and so i'm like right i've got an immaterial mind already uh in my ontology with god why can't i do that with human persons right whereas i'll see a lot of people be like well no god's just so different so of course i'm just gonna be purely physical and god's gonna be you know just purely material and i'm like why 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 and so yeah. for, for you you're doing it in, like in more what I think is more consistent sort of way, you're saying, well, no, if this is just what minds are, if we, if I do want to say a mind is like fully constituted or identical or something with a with a physical world, then why would I do something different with God here? So right. I, so I find I find that really attractive that sort of consistency here yeah. between the philosophy of mind and philosophy of God. So I want to get a bit more clarity on your model of God before we start looking at arguments for and against it. 
So you say that the universe either wholly constitutes God or it's identical with God. So I'm trying to understand exactly how this works. Because one thing that comes to mind is is something like maybe like prime matter or something. So is God like the prime matter that the universe is made from? Like how does how does your model of God work here? Central to my thinking, not just about God, but about, let's say, agents, mm-hmm. is that uh, an agent is a functionally integrated system okay. that has certain powers, right? in virtue of how it's integrated, right? How its parts are integrated. So in this case, it wouldn't be something like prime matter, but this is all nested within a particular ontology, which is Neo-Aristotelian. It's mm-hmm. a Neo-Aristotelian ontology of causal powers where objects are going to be things that are characterized by intrinsic properties that are powers that enable them to do certain kinds of things. And that also includes those things then combining in ways to be the, to provide the structure, if you will, of something else. Mm-hmm. So think here now of how things combine to, let's say, make a chair, mm-hmm. or how things combine in certain sorts of ways to, let's say, make a chemical compound. In this case, what you'd be appealing to now is how the different parts are have a kind of directionality, right? They're directed at these kinds of interactions to then um, give rise to right these kinds of objects. Mm-hmm. So in the case of God, then it would be an instance of that. What you'd have is is you'd basically would have, and same thing with let's say persons like you and I, mm-hmm. is you'd have these physical systems that whose parts are integrated in such a way, owing to their causal powers, that they can be you know they count as intelligible, intelligent, sorry, conscious agents that can do things in the world mm-hmm. right? and can represent the world in certain kinds of ways. And the same thing that I want to say is going to be true now about God, right? It's going to be owing to um, how that stuff is going to be configured and integrated into a system that we end up having something that we can describe as being a cognitive system, right? And mm-hmm. that's going to be sufficient to give us the truth makers we need now for talking about God using this kind of personal language and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just metaphorical. It's right. Like, it's literally, quite literal. We, we, we have, yeah, it's quite literal then. So. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to, I want to make sure I'm following along. So, so I've got the universe. It's made of physical stuff, mm-hmm. obviously. And are you saying that consciousness emerges from the physical stuff? Is that part of the, part of the claim? Uh, yeah, but any the sense of emergence here though is just weak emergence. Okay, sure. I don't think there's anything new in the universe. Um, right. And like I said um, earlier, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm inclined to to say that I'm a neutral monist these days. The reason why is because I think we have to be really careful here to avoid the thought that something under a particular description is reducible. That description is reducible to another description. Does that make sense? In other words, I I want to say the universe under the description of being a mind is not reducible to the universe under the description of being a physical system. Right. Right. The the way physicists are talking about it. Right. Right. Because the way that, let's say, a theologian might now talk about the universe qua God, Mm -hmm. right, under the description of being God is... Again, it's going to be, they're speaking truthfully. Mm-hmm. They're not just speaking figuratively. In other words, I want to be a realist about those descriptions. But on the other hand, when they're doing that, they're not engaging. That discourse is not reducible to the discourse of physics. Mm-hmm. Right? You, can't, you can't take this and translate it into that. It's, but again, but it's the same stuff. Mm-hmm. That same stuff, though, can answer to these, these different sorts of descriptions. And the reason why, going back now to right, the ontology in place here, the reason why is... Because the stuff is in possession of these powers that do this kind of causal work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to produce outcomes. And the outcomes in this case can be objects, right? In this yeah. case, because they end up being these kind of structuring powers, right? So yeah. 
so yeah, so that's how the picture ends up working. Um, okay, that's without me getting into too many details. Sure, but 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 that's that's the basic idea. So 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 to answer the question about prime matter, one way to think about it is is it's kind of almost like a kind of very modest hylomorphism. Okay. Okay. So the idea here being right, hylo, right? You've got um, matter and morphe form, mm -hmm. right? You know, so you've got everything is form and matter, right? But the matter, right? The form of the matter, right? That's going to be configured in the way such that it's a system is coming from the powers, right? Mm -hmm. That's where the form is coming from. Right. On account. I'm not saying it's Arist it's Aristotle's account. Of it's course. Neo it's Arist Arist it's, it's inspired by Aristotle. Yeah. But I'm not saying it's Aristotle's own account. Um, yeah. But it's, it is a kind of hylomorphic picture of um, the universe as a mind. And then I want to say the same thing about us. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to the emergence question, it's something that we wouldn't expect. Right. right? Just given the stuff alone, taken on its own, you wouldn't expect this. Yeah. Right? But that's not, you know, going to be uh, that kind of thing is something we see a lot in the sciences. Mm -hmm. Right. So, sure. you know, that you have living systems is something that you're just not going to get from, let's say, just talking about chemical compounds. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, it's and that's not to say that life now is this emergent property. Sure. Right. It's not. No, it's nothing. It's not. We don't want to be vitalists about mm -hmm. stuff. It's not some vital essence that's now there. No. And so I want to say the same thing now about, let's say, um, the universe as a conscious system, mm -hmm. right? And the ingredients of consciousness are already there. It just has to be integrated in such a way that you get something that is conscious. Yeah. Okay. So this follows nicely into the next question I have. Because uh, so I'm kind of curious about the relationship between science and your doctrine of God here. Yeah. So, so if the universe and God are they're made of the same stuff, then I, I guess I, I would I would find the job of a scientist to be a bit interesting here. So, sometimes sometimes scientists who are religious they'll say something like, you know, I'm just thinking God's thoughts after Him, right? Right. right. And uh, and and what they mean there is that you know, they're just trying to figure out like they'll use this metaphor that God's written, you know, like a book of nature, and they're just mm -hmm. trying to figure out like what He wrote, you know. Right, so they're right. not thinking they're studying God Himself, just studying yeah. God's handiwork. But like, if, but it seems like a bit different on your model of God because on your model of God, you know, the universe is either wholly constituted by God or identical to God. Well, it seems like the scientist is literally doing empirical work on God. Yeah. And, and I would imagine lots of scientists would have raised eyebrows at this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, they would probably find it quite surprising. But is, but it, that's not quite the way you're thinking about how science is working in your model of God here. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, no, and I think it's a great question because I think it's a natural worry someone might have. But go back to what I said about with the neutral monism. This is mm -hmm. why I'm, I'm more inclined to resist the label of physicalism these days, even if there's not that much of a real metaphysical difference between what I'm articulating and what some people who are self-described physicalists are going mm -hmm. to be um, defending. Because uh, the thought here again goes back to, look, the scientist now is, they're trying to understand the universe under a particular description. Mm -hmm. right? And then the theologian, let's say, um, and the philosopher of religion, they're thinking about the universe under this other description now. Mm -hmm. And not, it's not the case that one is going to be, you can under, you can now take the language of the one and then translate it into the other. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to say that what you're, you're not going to get any kind of inter-theoretic uh, reducibility or anything right. like that on this kind of picture. Oh, because so on now, physicalism, everything has to reduce down to the, to the laws on, of on, physics. On, on some ways of articulating right. physicalism. But right. since you're saying like, well, I'm not physicalist, I'm going to go for this more neutral account, yeah, yeah. then I don't have to have everything reducing down to the laws of physics. Yeah. You know, and this here is, this is like, goes back to Ernest Nagel's looking for bridge laws and this oh, kind sure, of stuff. Yeah. And so, and I think someone like Jaguan Kim was right to be suspicious of that. 
And I think Donald Davidson in Philosophy of Mind was, I think Donald Davidson is probably the, one of the most misunderstood philosophers of mind, but that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Because that's all he was saying. He wasn't a dualist. Mm-hmm. What he had was a conceptual dualism, though. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, he even says it explicitly in one of his articles. It was a 1984 paper in a Feshrift for Jack, for Jack Smart. I can't remember the name of the paper, but it's in his Problems of Rationality collection. And in there, he says... The psychological is a conceptual category, not an ontological category, right? And I think that Davidson would have said similar things about any of the other categories that mm. we're going to talk about when mm-hmm. it comes to, let's say, biology or whatever else. He's just said there's one kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And that one kind of stuff admits of different descriptions. I think at the end of the day, he was going to say it bottoms out in physics. Okay, whatever, that's fine. Um, I want to say that physics doesn't ultimately give us a deep, doesn't tell us the whole story. Sure. That, and that's what I think is really important about um, neutral monist proposals is Neutral monist proposals allow, I think they allow philosophers and theologians to have a job. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Um, so, because you can now say, okay, you know, let's suppose that you like pantheism or, you know, you like monistic views of the mind. You can say, well, physics isn't telling me the entire story about the nature of, you know, you know, the fundamental features of reality, mm-hmm. right? There could be something about that that we can understand philosophically. Right. right. So now think about, go back to what I said about powers having a directionality. Mm-hmm. Physics doesn't tell me that. No, right? no, right? they're not right. really usually can't identify the directionality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but, but, but these sorts of accounts, right, allow you then to try to make some sense of things mm-hmm. again, but using a different toolbox than let's say the physicist is going to use. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm trying to think through this here. So, cause my wife's a biologist. Uh, and so she's looking under a microscope. She's looking at DNA. I look in the microscope as a theologian. I'm still seeing the DNA, but, yeah. but I, you, but you could, but I guess as a theologian that I could give a different description of, of things in terms of theological language. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe in the case of DNA might not be a good case. Right. right? Does that make sense? But oh, now, I wouldn't but now, yeah, exactly. So, but now let's suppose you start thinking about neurobiology, mm-hmm. right? Now something else might be happening, right? right. And something that is going to be of theological or philosophical significance, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So now you can start talking about the structure of, you know, of neurons, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, modules in the brain, right? right? And how these things end up being integrated in such a way that we now have these intelligent systems and that could be something now that now you're approaching it differently yeah, than okay. let's say the, the neurobiologist will right. all that they're interested in now is about the inner workings let's say yeah. of you know a neuron with its axons and dendrites and the whole exactly. nine yards right that's what they're caring that's what they care about not about how that then the further story the deeper story there mm-hmm. are those who are right yeah but once they start doing that i think they're doing philosophy a lot of the time yeah right they start doing this consciousness study stuff and they're trying to tell some story about what's going on with neural activity and um as soon as they start doing that, a lot of times they start playing philosopher mm-hmm. in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. right? And again, I think the same thing happens now with the theologian because mm-hmm. now what you want to say is something about the the theological significance of this because now you start, this has implications potentially, right? Systems that are like this, right? Mm-hmm. Not like that are the kinds of things that can engage with their creator in a certain mm-hmm. way, right? Does that make right. sense? So, yeah. so, I, so that's where I think, again, it depends on where we are in the sciences right sure. what ends up being something that some some data point or set of data points that end up being such that now you can approach it right mm-hmm. qua theologian let's say right. or qua philosopher versus qua biologist and when it right. comes to dna let's say yeah, there's not much you can do there. I think right. maybe you know, maybe you can play. Maybe there's something. I don't know what it would be. I don't. It's, know it's not something that I'm consent thinking about. But yeah. Maybe somebody might appeal to something about. Because usually when I talk to some of the other uh, some of our lab mates, like I'll ask very various philosophical questions, and they're like, 
that's your job. That's not mine. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. like, yeah, yeah. The yeah, sort right, of stuff you do right. is very different. Yeah. And there might not be anything there, mm-hmm. right? But in other cases, there are. But in other cases, right. Yeah. So other cases where I start getting into the realm of agency or causation, right. uh, consciousness, then it seems like, ooh, now I'm in some yeah. uh, some philosophical waters here. Right, and it happens yeah. in other domains too, right? As mm-hmm. soon as you get into normative stuff, so you talk about things like philosophy of race, you start talking mm-hmm. about genetic variation, right? And interesting right. things like that about whether the concept of race tracks anything. right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's all kinds of really cool philosophical questions, the ones that you and I yeah. are most interested in. Those ones I don't think are really... Um, I don't think that we really have much of a toehold, you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> Over here in, in this yeah. domain, uh, there's not really much for us to think about. But again, maybe there's somebody who will disagree with us. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There probably is. Yeah. There always is. There always, there always is. Yeah, right. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode when we look at arguments for and against pantheism.